Uh, if, you've, uh, if you've been with us for a while, you know we're in the middle of a series uh, called Reasonable Objections. Um, really kind of kicked off at Easter where uh, there's just a lot of, a lot of skepticism surrounding uh, Christian faith and a lot of honest to, good, you know, honest to goodness good questions that skeptics have. And so if you're, uh, if you're a skeptic, um, welcome. We're glad you're here. This really, it's, it's for you, uh, this, this series. Um, we started out... Uh, gosh, what did we talk about? We talked about all kinds of stuff. Oh, uh, science and faith. Uh, we talked about that uh, the first week. We talked about sexuality. Um, we've talked about hypocrisy. Uh, just a lot of fun stuff that, you know, a lot of non-controversial topics. And uh, today we're going to talk about the Bible. Uh, if you don't know, uh, probably around the 18th century, maybe the 17th, but mostly the 18th century, especially in Europe and especially in Germany, uh, there was a huge movement called the, uh, the, the historical critical method where what, they, what the scholars did is they started really investigating the Bible in the same way that they would any other historical text. And at that time in the 18th century, uh, especially in Germany, the, 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 the results for the Bible weren't good. Uh, the Bible was, was roundly criticized and uh, it, it got to a point where... Um, Really, nowadays, uh, the, the inheritance of that scholarship has made it so that actually in most um, mainline denominations where uh, pastors and priests have been educated uh, at um, seminaries that are influenced by that, there, there, there's almost no belief in, uh, in the validity of Scripture at all, uh, certainly nothing about the miraculous or Jesus. Uh, it's been a, kind of a, a bloodbath uh, in terms of genuine faith, especially in um, mainline denominations. So, for example, uh, right now they did a study of mainline pastors. Uh, over the last 30 years, um, pastors <laughs> whose congregations have been shrinking. And they asked them some questions. And uh, it turns out that 19%, only 19% of um, mainline pastors who are, uh, who are having, have shrinking congregations believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, only 19%, that's, that's less than one of five pastors in mainline denominations that are shrinking, believe in the resurrection of the dead. Uh, that's a pretty startling statistic, since historically, uh, the resurrection of Jesus has been the basis of Christian faith and proclamation. But you can see the, the damage that has been done to faith because of critical scholarship. Uh, to the point that now um, in Germany and here in the United States, we are in many cases three, four generations removed from anything that looks like traditional Christian faith. And if you're a skeptic, uh, you probably come with very little um, background, or maybe like some, you know, some church background, but, but you've, you've lost all that because you're like, this is crazy. And the, the influence of that scholarship has, has, has given a, a very kind of pejorative view of, of the Bible and whether or not it's something we should take seriously. And so uh, if you're a skeptic here today, uh, this, I'm going to put these words in your mouth, uh, and hopefully this is sort of like uh, what you think. Here's a great question. It's been asked since the 17th century, and fortunately, like since then, a lot of new scholarship has, has emerged to actually make the answers better than, than they were back then. But this is what you might say. How can you rely on a document that's over 2,000 years old? It's been translated and copied so often, there's no way we're even reading what was actually written. What's worse, the Bible is dangerously racist, sexist, you could add homophobic, transphobic, every kind of phobic, and inaccurate. How can you base your life on this awful, awful book? Number one, it's 
super incredible that you would think that you're even reading something that's legitimately close to what the authors wrote. And second, even if it is, they were bad people. And the stuff the Bible says is really awful. And it's dangerous. And of course, it's silly. I mean, you know, talking donkeys and guys walking on water and, you know, multiplying loaves. It's, it's, it's child stuff. It's, it's silly. Well, skeptic, and, and for those of you who are Christians today, uh, who identify that way and think that way, uh, I'm, I'm gonna invite you not to, to I'm not gonna prove everything about the Bible. All I'm gonna say is, I wanna offer a good faith case that the Bible should be taken seriously. There's a difference between what we confess here at Coast, where the Bible is truth, 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 and just the idea that the Bible, and especially the claims of the New Testament, should be taken seriously. It's an invitation for you to say, well, all right, maybe there's some legitimacy here. Maybe it's worth checking out more than I have before. That's all, that's all we're gonna do. So let's, uh, let's jump in. Um, the Bible. Uh, the first thing we need to know about the Bible is, uh, is, is the texts. Right, uh, textual accuracy. Is it, is it really something that we have any genuine knowledge about? Well, I have a couple of interesting things that have been found since the, the 17th and 18th centuries that might indicate to us that the Bible should be taken more seriously than we, than we think. And so the first, I'd like to put up a couple of pictures here. On your left, you are seeing a copy of Isaiah from the Old Testament from the Dead Sea Scrolls. On the right, you are seeing a, the same uh, book, Isaiah, in the Masoretic text from the 10th century CE or AD, depending on how you like to do those things. Now, in the 17th century, in the 18th century, in the 19th century, they're like, look, we don't know what the Old Testament said. Our, our, our best manuscripts come from about 900, 950 AD. That's the oldest text from the Old Testament we have. So who knows what was written before that? I mean, these are texts that were written, what, like a thousand years before Jesus? Five hundred years before Jesus? How can we have any knowledge of what they really said? Well, a fascinating thing happened in the 20th century, and that is there were some uh, nerds who uh, went to Israel, and uh, they were looking for old texts and these nerds, um, they, they, Bedouin came to them and came to the nerds and said, Nerds, I know that you're looking for texts in Hebrew. We've, we've got a few. And the nerds were very excited because that's what excites nerds. Most of us like, you know, roller coasters. Nerds like old, old, old texts. And so they started checking out these texts and they started to realize that these were very ancient copies of not only the Old Testament, but of uh, some other, you know, what we now call the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls date back to about 200 years before Jesus. Now, if you're doing the math, that means that before the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and after, the, the difference in the, in the age of our text was about over a thousand years. Okay? A thousand years. So, so before the, we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, our oldest Old Testament texts were from about 950 AD. Now we have them from 200 years before Christ, over a thousand years of human history. Who's played Telephone? One of my favorite games with the youth group. It's where the first person whispers in the next person's ear, Tom has a large butt. And that person whispers the same message. It goes all the way around. And by the end, it comes to, Tom is the most handsome, beautiful man I've ever seen in my life. You can see that the, the, the original message has been corrupted. Here's a crazy fact. Uh, the textual accuracy... <laughs> Over a thousand year difference between our biblical texts from the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and the Masoretic texts uh, from the, the 10th century are like over 95% the same. 
Like, it's crazy how close they are. Uh, in fact, I, I, I show you the Isaiah scroll because Isaiah is 99% the same. <laughs> Over a thousand years of transmission. Um, gosh, it's almost like it was miraculous. I mean, it's amazing, right? That's an interesting fact. Um, also, the New Testament. Uh, I have some pictures of the New Testament. Uh, the New Testament is, uh, is, you know, so the Old Testament is sort of like uh, the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible. The New Testament is sort of like a, the announcement of Christ and Christianity. On the left there, you've got Constantine von Tischendorf, one of my heroes. He, uh, he was like, um, basically like Indiana Jones. He was a, an archaeologist and also like, like literally carried a gun around and like, you know, fought people. You know, he was an awesome guy. Crazy, crazy life. Probably the most important thing he ever did is uh, Constantine von Tischendorf in the 1930s uh, was um, at a, uh, at a, uh, like an old, old ancient church. And he's walking around the church, and he too is looking for old manuscripts. And he sees a bunch of monks, and they've got these, um, <laughs> they have these, these like baskets filled with these really, really old documents that they use as kindling for their fires, because it's up in the mountains. Uh, it's up in the mountains. And so he, he's like, oh, you're kindling. That's cool. And so he goes and he takes a look. And what he finds is, um, and there's a, in the, to the right there is a, is a, a sheaf from this, uh, what's called Codex Sinaiticus. It is the second oldest um, kind of almost complete version of the New Testament that we have. It dates from about 360 A.D., it's almost complete. There are, there are a lot of dots and spaces in it. Uh, but he, in 1930, finds a 1,700-year-old uh, text of the New Testament. This is not actually our oldest text. Our oldest text comes from uh, the Vatican. Uh, it's called Codex Vaticanus, and it's... Um, or Vaticanus, and it's, uh, it's roughly 320 A.D., and it contains the entire New Testament. It was uh, faithfully preserved in the Vatican for over 1,700 years, uh, or no, I'm sorry, 1,500 years until Erasmus uh, collected it. Fascinating facts about the New Testament. We have 5,300 approximately Greek manuscripts in whole and part. We have 10,000 Latin manuscripts. We have 9,300 manuscripts from uh, the Syriac, Coptic, um, Egyptian, other early translations. We have more copies of the New Testament in whole or in part than in any other document in world history. Moreover, we have uh, the entire text of the New Testament quoted uh, by the, the, the Greek fathers. So you could assemble the entire New Testament simply out of quotes from, um, you know, uh, Irenaeus and Augustine and um, Clement and some of the other earlier fathers. And what's fascinating, what's fascinating, even skeptical scholars today will say that we know that we've got about 93% certain of the original manuscripts of the New Testament. 93%. These are the skeptics. Okay, These are the people in the Jesus Seminar, if you've heard of them. They're going to be like, these, these are the ones who like, they don't believe in anything. But they'll say this, we know what the New Testament said. Interesting. Uh, those of us who are believers that think that we might even be more in like the 97 to 99 range. All right, uh, the, what else about the Bible? So, that's, uh, so I would say that we can say with pretty great confidence that we know what the Bible says. If, if you're concerned, like you think that, you know, that, that we're not accurate about what the, the Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew are, I think that you just haven't, you're not up to date. Like we really do have phenomenal textual records. Moreover, uh, you might come to the Bible and you're like, I know, the Bible's silly. It's got people being eaten by fish, all sorts of weirdnesses. Well, that's because the Bible has a whole bunch of different genres in it. 
There's a lot going on in the Bible. The Bible is not like one of these, like, you know, it's not a, a novel that you read uh, front to back. And so, um, like Medic's saying up there, the, the, the types of text. The Bible has poetry. It's got um, letters that are written to people. It's got uh, historical narratives. It's got uh, ancient historiography. It's got all kinds of things. It's got wisdom. It's uh, even got a book about sex. I mean, it's got everything. And so, well, you might, before, before you, skeptic, before you come at the Bible, maybe say, wow, there's a lot going on here. It might be a little bit difficult to understand exactly what everything means. And there might be room for reasonable disagreement about those things. Last but not least, uh, the New Testament, this is perhaps the most important thing for skeptics. Um, it's, by the 18th, 19th century, uh, there was a lot of scholars who would go out there and be like, the New Testament was made up whole cloth uh, by random people who were religious fanatics and fabulists. Uh, that, that is no longer um, even close to the consensus in scholarship about the New Testament. In fact, we have a ton of really good reasons to believe that the New Testament, almost all of it, was written between the years of 44 and 90 AD by people who were eyewitnesses or people who interviewed eyewitnesses of Jesus himself. I want to say that again. Modern scholarship, even skeptics, would agree that most, of, most, if not all, the New Testament was written between 45 and 90 AD by people who saw Jesus or by people who interviewed people who knew Jesus. Notice this. Uh, this is First John. We announced to you what, uh, what existed from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have seen and our hands handled about the word of life. We saw and touched and handled Jesus. Interestingly, our, um, our earliest uh, historical information says that Peter and John retired to Ephesus. And it's probable that uh, John's writing on behalf of himself, Peter, and maybe some other apostles here. Let's uh, go to Luke. This is uh, Luke. This is he's he's explaining what he's doing. Uh, uh, what he he's doing. If you read the book of Acts, it's written by Luke, probably in forty four, forty five A.D. One of the earlier uh, texts of the New Testament. An interesting thing happens. The vast majority of the text is, is Luke writing things like Paul did this and Peter did that and so and so did this and then and then this happens. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the regions of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit kept them from speaking the word in the province of Asia. A vision of a man in Macedonia came to Paul during the night. He stood urging Paul, come to Macedonia and help us. Immediately after he saw the vision, we prepared to leave for the province of Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. We sailed from Troas straight for Samothrace and came to Neapolis. This actually happens four times in the book of Acts, where the, the, the narration is going in third person, and suddenly it's, it's we, it's us. It's because Luke was actually there. He, he was actually there in 15 years after Jesus rose from the dead, we claim. And he was actually talking to Paul and Peter. He was talking to the apostles. He was a part of their adventures. And so he, he includes himself when he tells uh, parts of the story that he was there for. So we have very good reason to believe him when he says this. This is the next text. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events just as they were handed to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the first, to write an orderly account for you. Luke's saying, I, I know these people. <laughs> like, like, I'm not making this up. It's not like, it's not like I'm just, you know, woo. He's like, these are people that I know and have met. Fascinating. We actually have, um, we have a, uh, 
secular, non-Christian texts that confirm a lot of what Luke says. So, for example, uh, Josephus records the uh, execution of John the Baptist. Josephus also uh, records the martyrdom of James, the brother of Jesus. True fact, skeptic, did you know that a guy who grew up in the same house as Jesus took over the church in Jerusalem, preached for 15, 20 years after Jesus was gone, saying that Jesus was raised from the dead, and was executed for this by the religious authorities? I grew up next to two brothers, Scott and Jeff. Those dudes couldn't agree on anything. The only thing they could agree on is that they should beat each other up. Imagine if one of them was like, oh no, I'm willing to, to have you guys stone me to death because I'm not going to you know, give up the claim that, that, that he really was given from God to save the world from sin and ra- be raised after crucifixion on the third day. That's pretty weird. And we have that from non-Christian sources. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, The bottom line uh, is that, skeptic, I I have to say to you, even uh, skeptical scholars who agree with you that all the miracles and stuff, that's all fantasy, okay? Even they will say, we have very good reason, A, to believe that we have something very, very close to the original writings of, of the Old and New Testament. Moreover, the New Testament was almost entirely written by eyewitnesses or people who knew them. Which leads us to the first thing in our note sheets. What we read in the Bible is what the authors wrote. And the authors themselves, especially in the New Testament, were eyewitnesses. They actually saw what they saw. Now, they might have been wrong about it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not you know, denying that. They might have been crazy. But at the very least, we have to admit that they knew Jesus. They hung out with him and things. You know, they saw what they saw. And maybe they were nuts. Maybe they weren't. But, but this is, these are honest accounts. You're like, no, that's ridiculous. I know, I know a lot about the Bible. The Bible is filled with all kinds of weird stuff. It can't be real. I know, it's, you know, the talking donkey thing, that's bizarre. You know, the, the, you got the, there's the, the ten plagues. I mean, sure, that seems weird. But think about this. Skeptic, think about this. Um, I have the next picture. Uh, I, I am fairly decent at telling when my kids are lying. Okay, I'm pretty good at this. And that's important because Alice is a really good liar. And she really likes doing it. So I've got to be very, very careful. And one of the things I've noticed, one of the things I've noticed, is that when Alice is lying, the way she tells a story is like she's the good guy. Right? Like she was doing everything just right. You know, she was being really good in class. And randomly, her friend smacked her in the face. Or her sister is this and Olivia does hit her a lot. But the thing is, when Alice, I was just sitting there, and Olivia came up and slapped me. I'm like, Olivia's a lot of things. A sociopath is not one of them. So I, I, I'm just a little skeptical about the way you're telling the story. It seems like you're maybe painting yourself in a really positive light. And so I have good reason to question whether or not what you're saying to me is legitimate. Here's a couple interesting facts, especially in the New Testament, uh, close to or surrounding the death of Jesus. Here's a couple interesting things. Um, I've got the next slide. So uh, the first thing we notice is that, uh, is that Peter is definitely one of the sources, one of the eyewitness sources of uh, our, our gospel narratives. Um, he was a leader in the church. We know that he uh, was in Jerusalem for a long time, then in Ephesus. We have pretty good accounts of what he did. And what's so fascinating 
is that here's this guy who's like this total rock star in the early church. And all of the stories about him are like about what a failure he is. Like it really is. It's like every time Peter shows up, it's, it's almost like a comedy of errors because you're like, what's he going to do now that's stupid? In fact, like the, at the very end, he's the one who's like, he's like, Jesus, I would never run away from you. And as soon as the guys were like, we're going to kill this guy, he's like, I'm out of here. Don't you think it's like kind of weird that this guy who has all the power in the church didn't suppress that? Like, wouldn't you, if you, if there was a story about you, you're like, because you know, you're like L. Ron Hubbard, you want to start your own religion, get rich, do all that stuff, um, you know, get your Scientology going. If you're going to do that, you want to make yourself look good, trustworthy, awesome. You want to tell great stories, right? How weird is it that like the biggest guy in the church is the biggest idiot in the gospel narratives? Why didn't, why wasn't that suppressed? Well, maybe because the people writing the gospels were just kind of trying to tell the truth as best as they saw it. And as it happens, when you tell the truth about people, we end up not looking that great. In fact, a lot of times we look really, really bad. Jesus, Jesus is proclaimed as the Son of God, the Messiah given, to, uh, given by God to the world. He's crucified, raised on the third day. He's a superhero, right? Weird. Then all the Gospels record, uh, record before he's crucified, him literally pleading to God, God, don't make, let this happen. I can't handle this. And he's like sweating blood. He's crying out. He's scared to death. If he's such a superhero, why would you include any of that material? Moreover, at the very end when he's dying, he, it's recorded the Aramaic, Eli, Eli, Sabachthani, my God, my God, why are you leaving me? Why are you abandoning me? If you're trying to convince people that Jesus was raised from the dead, don't you think that's a sort of like detail? You'd be like, eh, let's not, let's not cover that. Let's just shove that under the rug. In the bottom right there, it's kind of hard to see, but it's a picture of the women discovering uh, the empty tomb. Uh, the ancient world was a very sexist place. Uh, and the testimony of women was laughed out of court because women were thought to be hysterical and silly. Aristotle thought that a woman was, quote, a defective man. Um, and that's a true, yeah, he was not a great guy. Um, smart, smart, but not great. Uh, the two are very often not found together. Um, basically, women were just laughed out of court. They weren't respected or, or listened to. So why would the Gospels include the fact, every single one, that the women were the very first ones to see Jesus raised and, and proclaim that? How bizarre! Like, if, if you're trying to convince your Jewish or skeptical friends, no, this is the truth about Jesus, again, like, oh, no, the chicks, they, no, don't worry about them. No, no, it's Peter and the guys. They saw, they know what's up. Why wouldn't you just, but it's there, warts and all. In fact, uh, there's, I, I recommended Cold Case Christianity. It's a cool book, and I, I've been talking about it with my skeptical, I have a skeptical friend. Uh, he's a lawyer. And I've been talking, we've been fighting, we've had a spirit and text debate this week about it. Um, uh, but one of the interesting things is he's a homicide detective who's done a lot of interviews and he's talking about reading the gospels. He's like, what's so weird is, is like when you're reading this, it really does sound like somebody who was, you know, witness to events, you know, has a perspective. Some things are weird, some things that aren't, but just kind of like an, it sounds more like an honest testimony than something that was made up. Let's see the next thing. Your note sheets. If it was made up, it would have been cleaned up. 
Again, they might be crazy. They might have been nuts. They were there, you know, like the bread's being multiplied, and they're like, oh, it's magic. Maybe Jesus was like the first magician. He's Harry Houdini. He actually had all the bread behind, and he just kind of was whipping it out. Maybe, who knows? But at the very least, we can say that, you know, that these people were there. They, they saw stuff, and they tried to be honest about it. And maybe that's a reason, skeptic, to take at least the Gospels, at least the New Testament, seriously. But wait. Uh, if you, so I, I like to browse the, uh, the atheism subreddit on reddit.com. I love atheism. I think it's an awesome... Uh, I like bold atheists. Agnostics, it's like, eh. But a, a good, solid atheist who's like, no, there's no God. They're fun. Because they, like, they take a stand, right? And they're all about it. And one of the things I love about the, uh, the atheism subreddit on reddit.com is, you know, they're all 14-year-olds and their parents make them go to church and they hate it. And so then they go and they post on Reddit about how stupid Christianity is. I love these guys. They're awesome. Anyway, uh, a lot of the things that they like to do is they like to post memes about, like, all the violence that Christians have caused. You know, like, oh, the Crusades, but Jesus loves people. Like, the, and, the, and the idea being that, that they have a moral objection to Christian faith, Right? Like, Christians are bad people who do awful things. And their God tells them to. Their Bible is racist, sexist, whatever. And, and as a result, we have to laugh them out of court. Even if it was true, we would have to reject their God on moral grounds. Their God's a bad God. And, okay, I can see where you can come from. Uh, next slide. It's true. Um, the Bible does not say, there's no verse that says, Slavery is wrong, therefore go and free the slaves. Nope. Um, and slavery in ancient Rome, uh, while different than the sort of shadow slavery that we're familiar with from uh, American history, uh, was still a brutal practice. And the Bible does not universally condemn it. Uh, bottom right there, polygamy. Uh, the Bible has been used to justify um, really an oppressive sort of, you know, multiple wives uh, servicing, serving one man. Uh, because, you know, the patriarchs, and that's actually Solomon right there. Solomon had, like, hundreds of wives and concubines, whatever. Uh, the Bible doesn't seem to say Solomon was a bad guy for doing this. Um, as far as, you know, you can hear over and over again that the Bible and, and Christianity has been used to oppress women. Top right there, um, the idea of a female scholar was, was you know, kind of crazy in the ancient world. And, and, and presumably the Bible has been used to enforce that, to reinforce that. Okay, yeah, all right, fair enough. Uh, it probably has. Uh, but one of the interesting things about the Bible is when you start to read what it actually says about polygamy and people who practice it, it's almost, it's almost like, gosh, this, wow, their lives are horrible. They do horrible things, and everything ends up badly. It's almost like polygamy is a bad idea. When you read uh, Philemon or Philemon, uh, Paul's letter to a slave owner, um, it's fascinating how what Paul's saying. He's like, he's like, I want you to receive um, your slave Onesimus back, but I want you to treat him as a brother, not as property. Did you know that, yes, the Bible has been used to justify slavery? Do you know who the abolitionists were? Christians, that's right, because they read the Bible and they're like, wait a minute, 
wait, 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 wait. The Bible also has all these things about human dignity. So maybe we should stop slavery. Yes, the Bible has been used to uh, promote the patriarchy. Do you know who the first feminists were? Christians, because they saw in Scripture that God, and Jesus especially, honors and carries and, and considers the human dignity of women. Uh, the, the idea of, of, like, of, of, of eliminating polygamy, that was a Christian idea in the West. Uh, racism, anti-racism is a Christian. It comes from Christians. It doesn't come from anywhere else, shockingly. Uh, and I, I'm painting with a little bit of a broad brush there, but it's kind of true. If you look at the history and, and the cultures of the world and you see, you know, things that we take to be, take for granted, like anti-racism, anti-sexism, um, anti-judging, all those things, tolerating people who are different than we are, loving everyone, where do you think those ideas came from? Like, they came from Christians who were reading the Bible. People are like, ah, oh, what about the Crusades? The Christians that killed all the indigenous peoples of North and South America. I agree with you. Smallpox, very bad. Slaughtering Indians. But here's the difference. Every other culture has been doing the same thing for all of human history, and only the Christians were like, wait a minute, should we be doing this? Because our book seems to say that we shouldn't. Huh. I would suggest to you um, and, and again, like the, the, these sermons are not to be had in a vacuum. I would love pushback from, from some of you skeptics, and I, I've gotten some. It's been a lot of fun. Um, but I want to suggest, I'm going to throw this out there. It's, it's a bold statement, and, and if you want to come back at me, I would love this. But here, here it is. The next thing in your note sheets. Oh, I'm sorry. Right. You wonder why. Why are Christians doing all this stuff? Well, look at some of the stuff we have in our Bible. This is what Paul says. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you were all one in Christ Jesus. Okay, just before your mind, like just so your minds do actually get blown. Okay, right now you have in somebody writing probably around 50, 80, 20 years after Jesus. And he is literally saying what we in the West had not come to believe until about 100 years ago. He is literally putting aside all racism, he's putting aside all classism, he's putting aside all sexism, he's putting aside every division that human beings have, and he's saying, no, in Christ you are one people. Like, to, to say that that is, is radical, it, it's, it's completely bonkers in the ancient world. It, the, it's, it's, only a, it's only the fact that we live in the culture that we live in that we don't see how ludicrous this is. Go live in another culture. I've done it. Uh, if I were to tell the Japanese, ah, oh, there's no difference between Koreans and Japanese, they would be like, eh, nande? Koreajin, eh? Asoka. Because that's blasphemy. They'd be like, no, we're way better than those dogs over there. If I was to go to them and say, there's no difference between men and women, they'd be like, come on. Women handle the purse strings. Men do. They have a very different kind of sexism in Japan, but it's super sexist. Bottom line is this. It's your note sheets. Far from being racist, sexist, etc., the Bible is actually the source of all secular movements protecting human dignity. And this is my, this is my statement. We could fight about this. We could fight about both of them. But the actual danger is unmooring these movements from the Bible's say-so. 
I think, I think the danger is when we, we embrace, you know, some of the things that the Bible does to liberate and deliver people and, and break down barriers, but we stop seeing that it happens in Jesus Christ. We take out the spiritual element that, that makes it real, and I think what we end up with is massive division and, dis- and destruction. I think that what makes the possibility of no slave or free, Jew or Greek, no, no male or female, what makes that possible is the reality of the Holy Spirit, the resurrection of Jesus, his giving of the Spirit, so that we in this congregation can actually live that out. I love the fact that our congregation exemplifies, it doesn't matter if you're old or young, male or female, black or white, it doesn't matter who you are, we are a family here and we treat each other that way. But the reason we're able to do that is because we share the same spirit, not we agree on, you know, the philosophy of classism and sexism or whatever. All right. Now, all I've done, all I'm trying to do here is I'm not trying to convince you that donkeys talk. Not, that's not my goal here. I'm, all I'm saying is that we have really good reason to take the Bible seriously. Not only, we have a good reason to take it seriously from a moral perspective. Like, it really is liberative and good. We have a reason to take it uh, seriously because it does seem to have eyewitness accounts of people who actually experience things. We do know with very great certainty that we have really what the actual authors wrote, much better than any other ancient document. It's crazy. So, with that, I have a challenge, uh, not just for skeptics, but also uh, for Bible people. So, uh, first one, a little challenge for Bible people, for y'all who uh, love the Bible and are at Bible church, and then a challenge for the skeptics. So, the Bible. Uh, guys, Christians, it may be normal for you to be like, oh yeah, Jesus turned water into wine. Oh yeah, you know, there was like plagues and stuff. Oh yeah, you know, Jesus was walking on water. Okay, for people who are children of the Enlightenment, that sounds like bonkers nonsense. Okay? Uh, for people who, you know, I believe in science, if that's your basic orientation towards the world, this is not the place to engage them. Because they, they come out and they're like, the, all the fantasy and all that, create that, that's just your, your child. It's silly. And when we're trying to engage people with the Bible, again, the, it's better to say, hey, let's try and take it seriously rather than let's all believe that, you know, Jonah was swallowed by a whale and three days later was spat up and unharmed. Okay, that's not where you want to start. Where you want to start is, hey, this Jesus guy, it seems like he's kind of legit. Let's check him out. Next, um, we have a tendency to really like, uh, on the Bible. Um, and I'm not knocking that because the Bible is my favorite book and I read it all the time. I love it. Um, but you always have to remember that the, the words or the phrasing or whatever, the, the, that's not what we worship. Okay? The Bible is not our God. It's not, the Bible is the, the testimony to our God. Um, and we can, you know, we, we do get a, a reputation for being Bible bashers when, like, people are like, I think we should do this. And like, but it's quoth in 1 Peter 3, 7, da, da, da. Like, is that, that's not a super effective way to engage people. Because remember, they're looking at the Bible as no different than the Iliad or the Odyssey. Why would they care what Peter had to say about anything? So let's introduce him to the God of the Bible, not necessarily, well, in part through the words of the Bible. Number three, and this is probably the most important, um, you cannot argue people into Christianity. I've tried and failed many times, 
um, it, it's not, it doesn't work. And we know why this is. Uh, in fact, our, the neurosciences have been fascinating. And one of the things that, one of the tests they've done, and they, they've published papers on this over and over, it's super rep- replicable. Um, they, they, they take somebody and f- have them focus on something that's 100% about logic and reason. Okay, like math problems or um, arguments about X, Y, or Z. And they have a person evaluate those things. And while they're doing it, they put like the, the, the electrodes to see what parts of the brain light up. And as you would expect, yeah, the frontal lobe where, where all of our critical thinking, that lights up. But fascinatingly, first, what lights up is the amygdala, where our emotions are. So what, ha- what that means is when we engage arguments, we do it emotionally. It's a first an emotional experience before it's a rational experience. This is why you can't argue people into anything. That's not how people make decisions. People make decisions on very much emotive grounds. Okay? And so the result of that is it's going to be way more effective for us to be an awesome family than it is for us to have the best arguments for why the Bible is true. If people come in and see us loving each other and they see us experiencing God's power and see us encouraging each other and praying, that's going to be way more compelling than being like, I've got the, the 320 AD Codex Vaticanus. That's not like people are like, oh, half of you fell asleep when I was talking about that. Oh, I see, Jack. I watch you. <laughs> All right. So that's challenge for the Christians, challenge for the skeptic. Here we go. Skeptic, here's what I ask. Number one, don't be a bigot. <laughs> this is fun. Uh, I like, I like uh, because uh, skeptics often call Christians bigots, uh, which I appreciate and, and really enjoy. Uh, and so I'm turning the tables on you. Um, you may have a notion about how Christians do whatever it is they do. But if you're honest and you haven't spent a lot of time with us, maybe you're wrong. Don't brush us with this broad stroke. Oh, I know what you do with the Bible, you weirdos. Instead, spend some time with us. See how we read it. See if our interpretations, what we do with Scripture, see if it rings true to you. See if, like, if, if all we're doing is sitting around being like, and then the donkey talked, and that's a historical fact, and that's what matters the most. See if that's what we do. Or... If we read differently and we're trying to find out what, uh, in this this case, Balaam and the donkey and the prophet and what what that means for our lives. Number two, um, we are unavoidably impacted by our culture. And it is true there will be times where, um, and I, I like to say that our culture is basically the theology of Disney. Um, basically, whatever Disney, the, the values of Disney is kind of like what Amer- reflects America, Right? Or the West. And there are things about Disney that um, are going to conflict with the Bible. And there will be times, skeptic, when you're engaging Scripture and you're like, I don't like this. This is uncomfortable and I don't dig it. It's worth wondering whether the values of our culture in 2019 are, are more credibly true than what we might get when we sensitively engage the Bible. And, and I say that because, you know, if you think about it, in the last, think about the, the culture in the last 20 years, how much it's changed, what's good and what's bad, what's acceptable, what's not. You know, 20 years ago, if Harvey Weinstein's like, oh, you want to part in a, in, a, in a movie? I got you. Okay? That was cool 20 years ago. Now that's evil, hashtag me too. That's changed, flipped in two decades. Maybe culture is 
not a great lodestone, not a great touchstone for what's true and good and beautiful. Culture shifts all the time. The Bible has been the same for 2,000 years. Doesn't mean we read it the same all the time, but at least it's there and it's stable. Maybe it would be a better place to plant your flag than whatever the Disney princesses say is good. Last but not least, and this is probably the most important, the Bible isn't the point. The point is the point. The Bible is pointing all the time to Jesus. And Jesus is recorded saying, who do you say that I am? And that's where it all comes down to. Um, I invite you to consider that, skeptic. Who do you say that I am? And put aside um, the parting of the Red Sea and the talking donkeys and, and, and put aside the ridiculous, like, there was no Jesus, well, you know, some of the crazy historical fakery nonsense. Put all that aside. Take an honest look at the Gospels and, and say, hey, is this pointing to true God and true man? Or is it not? Um, Doug, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're, we're late, so I'm gonna, um, I'm just gonna pray us out right now. I'm so sorry. We had, we believe, and we'll do it next week. I'm so sorry, uh, but I don't want it to be too late for anyone, especially those who are um, excited about the golf game today. <laughs> so uh, let me, let me, uh, let me pray us out, and uh, and the ladies can get to uh, the, the the tea. Gracious God. Um, I just ask uh, for a pricking of the heart for those uh, here who are skeptical uh, to, to maybe reconsider whether or not it's worth taking uh, the Bible and especially the Gospels more seriously. I pray, too, uh, for those who are religious insiders and, and super convinced uh, that the Bible really is your word, that, that we'll approach our conversations with our skeptical friends and colleagues and, and family members with humility and with love, um, that we will give the lie uh, to the Bible-bashing caricature and instead show that, that we really are a community of faith that really tries to, to hold each other up and, and to love each other and to really reflect um, who you are in real ways. And God, I do thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it really is trustworthy, that it really is um, an account of, of you and what you've done with the world. And thank you that it points to Jesus who, who lived and saves and who will come again. In his name we pray. Amen.